Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. On today's show, I'm going to tell you about what you should actually do in the event of a cyber attack, as opposed to something that I read, which was an article published dated June 1st, 2021. Uh, author and name of article shall remain nameless because I'm going to basically tell you that what they told you to do was wrong. So, Let's get started. I'm going to basically go through a publication uh, that someone else put out where they were trying to tell you what to do in the event of a cyber attack. And as I read this article, I was like, hmm, there are so many things that are just not quite right with this article. So I felt compelled to share a counteracting opinion about what they had to say in this article. Because this is probably, this whole thing of what to do in the event of a cyber attack is, it's so crucial that people understand what the correct thing is to do. I mean, it's so crucial to the degree that if you do it wrong, you may actually end up going to jail. I'm not kidding you. I'm really not kidding you. It could be a situation where if you handle your cybersecurity incident response incorrectly, the FBI could say that you have uh, tampered with evidence and hampered an investigation, and they could press criminal charges against you for that. Yeah, so I mean, this is serious, dead, dead serious stuff here. And this is like, you go to jail, you screw this up. Or it could be a situation where you just have more risk and damage to your organization if you screw it up. I mean, either way, it is so fraught with pitfalls that a serious amount of discussion and analysis needs to be done on this. So first of all, I have to say that this article is maybe about two pages long, which really frankly does not even remotely come close to doing justice to the kind of information that someone would need to have if they were going to be uh, formulating an effective response to a cyber attack. So that's, I guess, num number one, my pet peeve on a lot of these sorts of things is that they just do not discuss the subtleties, the gotchas, the intricacies, and so then they, you know, it's like this gloss over hand waving where they make it sound like, oh, you know, just do this and then it'll be fine. No, no, it's not that easy. Oh my goodness. Cybersecurity is hideously complicated. In fact, IT infrastructure, IT security, IT stability, backups, I mean, all this stuff is hideously complicated. It's just hideously complicated. And there's no getting around it. I mean, first off, if you look at an automobile, automobiles are hideously complicated. And every little component of that car has to be in a working order before it's even going to start up and drive someplace. You know, you can have maybe just a few little tiny ancillary components that aren't working. Uh, but that's even becoming less and less and less now with these computerized cars. 
know, out of an effort of self-preservation, the cars may be like, nope, that's it. I'm just not going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So the computer, the computers we live with today are enormously worse than automobiles because the fact that we have to, by nature, make these computer systems interoperate with diverse and disparate systems all the time. And it's not exclusively a problem of maintaining backward compatibility. It's uh, it's also a problem of just interoperability while still maintaining security, uh, managing acceptable levels of risk, and you just don't have those problems in the framework ecosystem of uh, an automobile for the most part. Uh, it's certainly not because it's kind of a closed system, right? If you go look at a, a your typical automobile, it's a fairly closed system. It's not like it's uh, open source cars, you know. So first off, you have to understand that there's always going to be these little gotchas and intricacies, and these things just don't exist in a user manual anywhere. So that's one of the reasons why I feel like it's a bit of a responsibility of folks like myself in the industry to not, you know, the point is not really to point out where the publications written by other people are wrong, but really to raise awareness around these topics and say, it just isn't that simple. And instead, you need to be thinking about these other things. In fact, I was on a uh, cybersecurity training session yesterday by some of the top minds in the industry and one of the owners of a really big sock center said something very 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 subtle <laughs> and he was talking about uh, third-party independent evaluation assessment about EDR EPPs and uh, you know and he said you know before you go and decide you're going to utilize something, you, know, you need to actually think about how that is going to be evaluated inside of a cybersecurity incident response arbitration hearing. And uh, you know, and he was really just not at liberty to say anything more than that. Now, of course, I knew what was really going through his mind because uh, these are some of the things that I think about too, and. And so, you know, he said very subtly, yeah, these are things you may want to think about. So the problem that I have with statements like that is unless somebody's already an insider like myself, you don't know exactly what the heck he's even talking about to go down that route and say, hmm, okay, well, gee, where do I begin? You know, I mean, so, so I'm trying to dispel some of these these myths and actually thought provoke people into an area that's meaningful that results in actionable intel which is always my intent is to give you actionable intel to give you clarity of understanding of something and to drive actionable intel so let's start with my analysis of this uh, this article that I felt was providing misinformation. All right, so they say step number one is to contain the cyber attack. Well, I mean, on, on its face, that's, you know, that's obvious. And 
Now, they, they say here, if your computers are infected by ransomware, they may continue to encrypt your data even when they're disconnected from the Internet. The best solution, if this is the case, is to stop your computers running by putting them into hibernation mode. Uh, and then they say, well, although this may not be possible on some desktop PCs. Okay, let's just dispel this here. <laughs> um, no. I'm just going to call no on that. And the reason I call no on that is because, first off, let's just think down the timing on this. So you think some sort of a thing is happening. Well, that thing that's happening, hopefully you would have had an MDR service that would have already picked up that this thing is happening. And if you're systems don't have the automation in place to do what's called automated containment, then whoever is running the MDR better go into the EDR EPP platform and immediately do host containment. At the point in time that a machine is compromised and the data on it is getting ransomware, okay, that system is just dead. It's just dead. I mean, it's contaminated. It's got some sort of hideous infection. The way to fix computers that have a hideous infection is you hard wipe them and then you restore them or you rebuild them. Now, at this point in time in the incident response, the only thing that's appropriate is host containment. So first off, you better have an EDR EPP that has a host containment functionality. If you don't have a host containment functionality, what is your response? I mean, seriously, let's say you're an IT service provider. What are you supposed to do? Go and call up your customers and tell them to do what? Put them into hibernation mode, which is what this article says? I mean, it's preposterous. It's literally preposterous. We are talking about malware that operates at the speed of processors on multiple computers simultaneously. By the time you're done even making the phone call to somebody and trying to tell them how to put a PC into hibernation mode, it's just game over. I mean, it's just a ridiculous statement to make that you should put the PCs into hibernation mode. <laughs> okay, so host containment is the name of the game, people. It's host containment. Now, the article was correct in that it said, a common mistake to avoid is that it may be tempting to turn your computers off, but that may destroy valuable forensic evidence. Yes, correct. That is actually correct. The correct approach is to not shut down and not turn off the computers, but instead to flip your switch in your MDR ED, EPP EDR platform and turn on host containment. Okay, so the second step I would argue, which isn't even in this article, step number two is you need to activate your network layer security policy that, oh, I sure hope you had that in place already in advance. And if you didn't, well, then maybe you ought to go do that right now. My suggestion is to pre-create 
a policy at the root network layer between the internet and the VLANs where Windows systems reside that may be getting ransomware. And to, in that policy, eliminate those systems' ability to communicate with the internet with the exception of maintaining certain connections to things that you still need those resources to communicate with. Great example would be the EDR EPP MDR platform. You obviously still need to maintain that level of communications in order for your host containment functionality to be effective. Now the reason that you're attempting to disconnect these systems from the internet is so that as they are having malicious things occur locally on the endpoints, if that's actually what's going on, then the bad guys are no longer able to engage in data exfiltration. Now, some people will excruciatingly naively state, oh, we'll just disconnect the internet entirely. That really doesn't help. Again, you need to be able to maintain the communications between the endpoints and the MDR at a minimum. I would also argue that there are probably other VLANs on that network, such as phones, surveillance cameras, door access controllers, the guest wireless, all of those subnets should have already completely been isolated from any Windows computers anyway. So what's the purpose in disconnecting those VLANs from the internet? So if your customer has a situation where their computers are getting ransomware, then uh, why would you want to kill their phone system at the same time or suddenly say like, oh, well, you know, I guess you don't get your surveillance cameras or your door controllers either. I mean, you may literally end up being in a situation if you make a naive policy like that where you're disconnecting uh, their federally regulated, mandatorily necessary, you know, or state regulated security system. Yeah, that could happen, right? So. Don't go and make naive statement that says, oh, well, we're just going to disconnect the internet, which is again why I say that this whole concept of calling up your customer or calling up anyone, frankly, and getting them to manually pull a network cable is a preposterous approach. So you need to have these automations already in place ready to rock and roll and whoever is doing the MDR service whoever is monitoring these bad you know these these events that occurring they need to know what the process is that you need to do host containment and then you also need to and I mean I don't really care which order you do it maybe you flip the the policy that blocks egress access and first and then you do the MDR whatever I mean that's your pleasure right you get to decide that but suffice to say that the point here is to limit the damage and the way that you limit the damage is you've got to use 
very, very fast response automations. So if you have to call somebody and get somebody to do something else, I mean, this is just, it's a preposterous approach. You've got to be, whoever is monitoring has got to have the authority to take immediate unilateral action. Okay, so I'm going to go on with the rest of this article here where they talk about um, change your passwords. The next step is to use a computer on a separate network to change the passwords for cloud services, blah, 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 blah. Well, really? I mean, I, I, I just, I have an issue with this one because I don't necessarily think that password changing uh, after an incident is something that you should just go spaz out over and take care of. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that there's no efficacy in password changing, but you probably, if, if it was actually a credential that was compromised, you can't change the passwords fast enough in order to prevent the bad guys from being able to exploit them. So this is, again, another context where a response pattern that says go and change passwords is just, I mean, I guess if you didn't have multi-factor authentication in place, if you didn't have conditional access in place in advance, yeah, sure, go ahead and change passwords. But see, the problem I have with what they say in this article is that they really should have said, a if you feel like you need to go change passwords, then you probably don't have the appropriate preventative protections in place in advance. Instead, if you do feel like potentially there was a credential compromise, you should be able to look at a whole host of credentials that exist and say, well, you know, we have conditional access policies. We're monitoring those logon events. Uh, we have multi-factor authentication enforcement that's high quality, that is utilizing uh, time-based and not event-based authentication and, you know, a variety of other technically detailed factors. The point is, is that if you can't tick the box on the vast majority, if not all, of the credentials that you have and, and proactively have a calm sense of certainty around you that even if the bad guys got that credential, they won't be able to do anything with it anyhow. I mean, that's the kind of, that's, that's the position you want to be in. So what this article should have said was, you know, think about the thing, the passwords that you would think that you need to go change in order to prevent the bad guys from getting in utilizing a compromised credential and figure out a way to make it so that even if the bad guys do get the credential, they still can't get in. That's my recommendation. You know, get in the driver's seat of these problems and, and figure out how to stop them before they happen. Okay, so then uh, the next part of the article here talks about uh, get the experts in. So they say the next thing you need to do is understand how the cyber criminals 
uh, were able to attack your your organization successfully and what you need to do to fix this vulnerability. Well, um, I find this whole thing ridiculous because if you don't know how the bad guys got in place, then you didn't have the right logging and alarming and monitoring in place. And trying to get some experts in after the fact, I mean, they're going to be working based upon what? What data can you give them? I mean, if you didn't have the effective logging, uh, effective monitoring, effective alarming, alerting, if you didn't have an MDR knock-sock service in place in advance, then you probably won't actually have the data to know how the attack occurred. So this is, again, I find it to just be silly. It's just silly. And, you know, this article doesn't even talk about the real thing that you need to be doing. Look, if you think you got ransomware, or you know you got ransomware, right, if you think there was a cybersecurity incident, if you don't call your cybersecurity, cyber liability insurance company and report the incident, the likelihood that your event will be a disqualified event is quite high. I have talked to many people that work specifically in the incident response area, specifically deeply involved or working for or on behalf of the insurance carriers, and two main, well, there are three main, I'm going to say three main disqualifying events for cybersecurity insurance coverage. One of them is what's called late reporting. So late reporting is when, you know, you didn't, you didn't inform them in a timely fashion. You know, another thing that um, causes you to not have a covered incident is uh, that you basically screwed it all up. You know, you tampered with the evidence. You didn't have the data to actually demonstrate that you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. And then they think that you've committed fraud, and perhaps you did commit fraud. When you fill out that cybersecurity insurance risk assessment questionnaire, that is what they utilize in order to assess your organization's risk posture before they issue you a premium. If that form was filled out by, well, I'm just going to say anyone with less technical skill than I have, then that form may have not been completely or correctly filled out with the supporting documentation and the likelihood of 
your claim being denied because they find that, oh, well, you, t you reported that you had multi-factor authentication on everything, but then now an uh, insurance company came along and brought in their post-incident forensic response people, and they find out that <laughs> you didn't have multi-factor authentication, not on everything, and you didn't have it on all accounts, and it wasn't validated. Maybe you only had it on... I mean, even if you had it on 98% of the accounts, well, that one account you didn't have it on, that's actually the account that got compromised, that was the, the business email compromise that led to ransomwareing the entire organization, and uh, that when you reported on your cybersecurity risk assessment questionnaire, you stated that you had multi-factor authentication on all accounts, uh, well, you just committed fraud, okay? They will deny your claim. They're not in the business of giving away money that they don't legally have to do so. So another big problem I have with this article is it doesn't speak to any of that stuff. It doesn't speak whatsoever to the real things that you need to do proactively in order to make sure you have a covered incident. And some of that is that You've got to stop thinking in terms of these once-a-year assessments or uh, these manual inventory of things. I mean, a lot of the security frameworks, uh, especially on the compliance side, are all about some human being is going to manually generate this inventory or they're going to manually do this or they're going to manually do that. And then they're going to upload it into what's called the GRC, the Governance Risk Management and Compliance Platform. And I think my biggest gripe of all time with most of the GRC platforms that are on the market is that they do not actually really have mechanisms to in an automated way, ingest and retain with retention policies and alert notifications as to who should be alerted. You know, they don't really have these mechanisms to ingest and retain from sources of automation the data. And then what it should be doing is ingesting this data that is being delivered, utilizing automation, parsing it and against uh, criteria, and then evaluating it, and then doing automatic scoring. I mean, this is literally what needs to be happening. We, the only way that you're going to be able to effectively demonstrate to the uh, cybersecurity risk insurance, you know, cyber liability company that, you know, you as an organization consistently were doing your due diligence is that you're going to demonstrate, you need to demonstrate a pattern of behavior. So like, you know, here's our report every single month about all of the users that had multi-factor authentication enabled for email and that it was enforced. And okay, well, on this month we found that oh, one of the new users that got created, uh, the person who set up that account, had failed to enforce MFA and uh, that, oh, well, the next month that that report came out, that issue was corrected. Right? You need to demonstrate a pattern of behavior that is attesting to the status of your security posture over time. And that status is not stagnant. That status is stuff changes in your environment. 
and then someone needs to be reviewing those items and saying, hmm, here's a, a difference, right? Here's a gap between what should exist and what is. And then you need to see that problem getting resolved by the next month's report. So I don't know that anybody's really talking about this. I haven't heard about this anywhere outside of you know, limited platforms that are hideously expensive. I mean, if you have to spend 18 to 40,000 plus per year just to have that level of functionality, that is a level of financial unobtainium that makes no sense for the vast majority of organizations that are out there. And, and frankly, again, I, as I say, I've looked at a lot of the, the GRC platforms that are out there, and they just don't have this ability to do the automated ingestion, retention, uh, parsing, reporting, alerting. They just don't have it. And uh, so, you know, why they think their platforms are worth five or six hundred dollars a month is truly mind-boggling to me when they don't have that basic criteria. I mean, when you're looking at a platform that where they say, oh, we want $600 a month for that, and then you still have to throw inordinate amounts of human manpower time to like, let's go and get these reports and then manually upload them. I mean, that's just a preposterous process. Besides the fact, from a compliance perspective, I don't really think it has that much efficacy because you're what you're inherently saying is that if a human being was involved in the manual upload of said data, then that data could potentially have been tampered with. Well, how is that independent attestation? I don't think it is. I'd much rather have a process that just utilizes automation, scheduled basis, generate reports, dump it in, and then use a you know automation in order to parse that and analyze it and do and score that against a a risk assessment and just be done with it. Uh, I mean, that's really where the industry needs to go. Now, right now, we are able to do a great deal of that with our own custom automation. And we're doing that for our clients now. I don't know of any platform that's actually doing that at a comprehensive level um, because the, the the comprehensiveness is really the issue. It's, you know, you have to ingest the email system, the backup system, the, uh, the inventory system, um, the patch status, the vulnerability reports. I mean, you know, you go on and on and on and on. Okay, you have to have a mechanism whereby the data from all of these resources get coagulated into this one platform that is then uh, scored and risk assessed on a monthly basis. And like I said in the beginning of this podcast, it's hideously complicated. It is very hideously complicated. It can be done though. Well, so uh, I hope that was some useful insightfulness for you. And, uh, you know, the rest of their little article talks about, you know, reporting the incident to the right people and, and so forth and yada, yada, yada. And, it, you know, basically, yes, go do your incident response planning, figure out who needs to be informed, uh, make sure that you're contacting your breach coach at your cyber liability insurance company. But um, I just, there were just so many issues with that article. It was so incomplete that I felt like we needed to have some clarity around it.